Hi, I'm Pastor Jason from Yokine Baptist Church, and this is a sermon recorded at one of our Sunday morning services. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you're encouraged by this message and that it draws you closer to God. Enjoy. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we come to you now. Uh, your words are precious to us, Lord. And we ask that you uh, reveal yourself, speak to our hearts, Lord. Pray that you'll open our hearts so that we can hear your voice clearly. And we ask that you shape us to be the people you want us to be. Amen. Well, how does it feel to be on the losing side? I remember when I was in high school, a couple of my friends were really into basketball. And we played every lunchtime, uh, and we thought we were getting pretty good. In fact, we thought we were probably <laughs> getting a bit too highly uh, thoughtful of ourselves because we decided to join the men's A-division team competition at Warwick Stadium. So we're about 15, 16 years old. So we thought, we're, we're so good, we're going to play against like A-division men, like 20 to 30-year-olds. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what we're thinking, but I remember the first game we played, the halftime score was 50 to 2. Um, uh, yeah, well, I'll let you guess who was 2. Uh, <laughs> well, you know you're not doing well when your opponents are practising their reverse slam dunks and half-court shots. And, uh, and the normally positive, encouraging person on your team says absolutely nothing. So, needless to say, after that game, we, we dropped out of the competition feeling pretty discouraged. Now, as a Christian, does it ever feel like we're on the losing team? According to one American study, one in three young people outside the church surveyed, said that they thought Christianity represented a negative image in which they did not want to be associated with. One in three young people. This is significantly different to a study done a decade earlier where about 85% of those outside the church said that they saw Christianity playing a positive role in society What's more, many churches and Christian organisations are starting to struggle, struggling with decreasing attendance rates and levels of funding. So sometimes it seems like Christians are on the losing team and nobody likes to be on the losing side. But Daniel chapter 1 is a refreshing reminder that despite seeming like God's people have lost, God's kingdom is never overcome. And this morning we'll look at three points that help us to understand how we can be faithful to God, even in circumstances when it feels like we're losing. Firstly, we'll look at the challenges to faithfulness. Then we'll look at Daniel's act of faithfulness. And lastly, we'll look at the source of faithfulness. So firstly, Let's look at some of the challenges to faithfulness that Daniel and his three friends encounter. 
Well, the narrative tells us two significant events that raise challenges to faithfulness to God. The first event, in verses 1 to 2, was the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Historically, this happened about 597 BC. And not only are we told that King Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, the writer is careful to mention that he also took sacred articles from God's temple and he put them in the treasure house of his own God. This is not a not-so-subtle gesture of what Nebuchadnezzar thought of the God of Israel. The second event described in the rest of the chapter was the exile, where the people of God were taken captive and sent into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is interested in keeping the best of these captives for the purpose of serving him in his palace, of which Daniel and his three friends were part of. Again, the writer gives us a lot of detail. The captives were to undergo a three-year training program so that essentially they would become Babylonian. They'd learn to speak the language, to know the literature and the beliefs. Even their identity was meant to become Babylonian, as verse 7 tells us that new names were given to Daniel and his three friends. Verse 7 says, The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. See, what's significant about, about this is that their old names were actually statements about their relationship with God. But their new names are statements praising and honouring the gods of the Babylonians. So you can see on this slide what the old names and new names were. The judge, Daniel, my God is judge, which becomes Belteshazzar. The god Bel protects the king, and so on. See, the name changes reveal that Nebuchadnezzar's plan was not just to make these guys familiar with Babylonian culture and religion. It was actually to squeeze out their former identity as God's people. See, when we look at these two events, the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile into Babylon... We can imagine the enormous challenge posed to these captives to continue to be faithful to God. The physical destruction of their home and their place of worship and the cultural pressure to assimilate and to become Babylonian. So these challenges of physical threats and cultural pressure to assimilate that Daniel and his three friends experienced were not isolated events but in fact have continued throughout the ages of history, even to today. As Jenny mentioned in her prayer, in many parts of the world, to identify as Christian carries with it the risk of death. And the challenge of of cultural pressure to assimilate is also real, whether that be an active policy, like a government 
ban on Christian literature or evangelism, or more passively, such as the often negative portrayal of Christianity in the media. So I remember hearing a few years ago that in one of our local universities that a Christian campus group uh, was threatened to lose their status as an officially approved uni club because they did not get with the program and teach what, the, what aligned with university policy on sexual diversity. They didn't get with the program. So the pressure of cultural assimilation is real, even, even in free places like Australia. So we've looked at the immense challenges of Daniel and his three friends, challenges which continue even to today. And we ask the question, how does Daniel and his friends respond? So we're going to look at the next part, Daniel's act of faithfulness. And the story highlights how Daniel and his friends responded with an act of faithfulness, which you can see in verse 8. Verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. So though it might seem trivial to us, Daniel's decision not to eat the king's royal food was a major statement of faithfulness. Because the two markers of Jewish identity was circumcision and their food laws that distinguished them as a Jew. So by choosing not to eat the king's food and maintaining purity through the Old Testament food laws, this was a statement that Daniel still considered himself to be a Jew, that his allegiance still remained with God, despite what happened to God's temple being ransacked, despite his changed name to worship another god. Daniel chose not to compromise what was core to his relationship with God. You've got to ask yourself, how easy could it have been for Daniel to compromise and even justify it? He could have said, you know what, it's pretty inconvenient to follow God's law right now. I mean... (laughs) I'm sure God doesn't mind me eating the king's food, considering the circumstances. I may may as well just flow with it. The king's food looks pretty good anyway. He could say, well, I'm not actually able to do a lot of the other parts of the law, like present sacrifices at the temple. So one more thing is not going to be that significant. See, I wonder how we justify, and maybe... Maybe we even embrace compromises to our faithfulness to God. Perhaps, perhaps we put pragmatics and practicalities over holiness. We might decide it's not worth putting our jobs at risk by standing up for injustice or by siding along someone who's being bullied. We might convince ourselves that it's okay to go into a relationship that we know we shouldn't because we can't see a better way of being happy at the time. 
we might decide, you know what, sexual purity is a bit unrealistic. And we may decide just to give up the fight of temptation. Um, We might convince ourselves that supporting the oppressed and the poor is too complicated and gets in the way of our comfortable lifestyles. So in the New Testament book of Hebrews, there's a warning that to start compromising leads us down a pathway that in the end rejects any notion of God's authority. Because in the end, by choosing to compromise, our hearts will become hardened towards God. But Daniel's faithfulness, his act of faithfulness, which starts off in chapter 1, continues to show itself resilient in the other episodes of this book. We all know the, the famous stories of Daniel and his three friends, their refusal to bow down and worship the king's statue, despite facing a fiery furnace, and Daniel's refusal to obey an order not to pray to his God, resulting in being thrown in a lion's den. So Daniel and his friends act in faithfulness. And that reflects their decision not to compromise their relationship with God, even if that meant facing death. So I've looked at the challenges to faithfulness as well as Daniel's act of faithfulness. And the question is, what is the source of faithfulness? How is it that Daniel and his three friends could remain faithful despite these immense challenges? Well, this story tells us that the source of faithfulness comes from an important uh, truth about God. And that is that God's kingdom is never overcome. God's kingdom is never overcome. You can see this uh, as the narrator of the story cleverly describes the story on two levels. On one level, Nebuchadnezzar And his successful kingdom is on display. His military power, his strategy for cultural assimilation and political control, even the fear that uh, is displayed in his servants to do his bidding, all point to King Nebuchadnezzar as a mighty king with no rival. But did you notice on a higher level, God's kingdom, despite appearing to be defeated, has never stopped being in control. God never stops carrying out his good purpose for the world. You can see this uh, in verse 2. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. What does it say? And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim into his hand. So it may may have seemed like Nebuchadnezzar had defeated God, but it did not happen outside God's sovereign control over his world. There's a lot in the book of Daniel about how God's sovereignty, how God is sovereign over the world, but here we're just introduced to this almost contradictory reality that despite appearances, God's kingdom is never overcome. 
So God is in control and continues to be in control despite the circumstances pointing otherwise. And he even continues to be in control and is personally involved in the lives of these four young men, which in verse 9 says, Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. And in verse 17, God gave knowledge and understanding and to these young men. You see, God is not just a sovereign God in control over the big things of the whole world, but he's also a personal God who loves his people deeply. Where else in the Bible do we find God, despite looking defeated, actually being victorious? Where else in the Bible do we find a sovereign God, but also a personal God who loves each of us deeply? Well, the most striking example is none other than Jesus himself. So Jesus enters into our world because he loves us dearly. He proclaimed that he was bringing God's kingdom into the world. And he showed this by showing what it was going to be like having God's reign. The sick were healed, the oppressed were set free, injustices were reversed. But what happened to Jesus? So those who had power and influence, the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman authorities... Those who had power put Jesus to death in the most shameful and humiliating way. Jesus died naked, nailed to a cross. Anyone on that day walking past would assume that this kingdom Jesus talked about had been defeated, including his own disciples and family. But by his death, we know that God had not lost, but instead he had won our greatest victory by dying on the cross for us as payment for our sin. We who are guilty and unclean can can by Jesus' name call ourselves worthy and pure. And by rising again, Jesus shows us that his kingdom is indeed never overcome, even by our worst enemy, death. So even if it seems like another kingdom is more powerful, another kingdom is more influential, even more terrifying and fearful, Daniel tells us that the source of faithfulness lies in recognising God's kingdom as eternal and never failing. So human kingdoms will rise and fall, but God's kingdom never fails. 2,500 years after these events in Daniel, nobody really cares about Nebuchadnezzar. I've never walked past anyone at a cafe talking about him. Um, But... The word of God remains true today and the name of Jesus will continue to be worshipped for eternity. 
See, the source for our faithfulness is to recognise that God's kingdom is never overcome. And we see that especially in Jesus, who has defeated sin and death. To me, the hardest part of this story to grasp, I think, is that if God is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords, if God is who he says he is, he may not do things in the way that I want him to. See, if, if God exists to us, if God exists to me only to give me a pleasant, comfortable life, fulfilling my earthly desires and ambitions, instead of wanting God to be in charge, to shape us, to mould us, to refine us, to be more like Jesus for eternity with him, then will I find faithful will I be faithful during hardship? Will I be faithful to him in obedience? Or if I only serve God when I find it satisfying or when I see tangible results with big numbers, or if it conveniently fits in with my schedule, will I be faithful when things get tough? You see, sometimes I think that I have made God my king. But when he doesn't get with my program, or when I feel like uh, he's not getting in with the world's program, I'm tempted to abandon him, or to justify my compromises to obedience. But in this case, God really isn't my king at all. I'm just pretending that he is for the sake of my own agenda. So the question this morning is, will we let God be our God? Will we submit to Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords? It means identifying with him despite physical threats or cultural pressure to abandon him. It means turning from compromise to taking God's words seriously, to trust that what he's promised in his word is sufficient for this life and the next. It means serving him faithfully in difficult times as well as good. It means being more concerned for God's honour and praise and glory over our own successes and even our own lives. So let's allow God to be God and prayerfully allow him to work in each and every circumstance. And let's expect to see God's kingdom powerfully work at the praise of his glory. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. A special thanks to those that have donated to us online, enabling us to continue our ministry to the local community and beyond. It's because of you that our ministry is possible. Click the link in the description or visit yokinebaptist.church to find out other ways you can support us. If you enjoyed listening to this message, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.